Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. If everything goes according to plan, and really, how rarely does that ever occur, really? My plan is that we're going to look at Psalm 29 tonight, and although we have been going mostly sequentially through these psalms that make up the first book of the psalms, I want to skip from 29 over to Psalm 33 tonight because they are both so similar thematically. I've only got one thing to talk to you about tonight. These are not difficult psalms at all. They are expressions of praise and worship. And if I get nothing else through to you tonight, I hope to help you look at God in a way so favorably that you really cannot help but worship and praise God. Because that's really what Psalm 29 is about, and then you see it expanded on and expressed again in Psalm 33. Psalm 29, the first two verses, are a perfect definition of what worship actually is. There are two stages, according to David, to worship. The first is recognizing who you're dealing with, and then ascribing to him the characteristics that only he possesses. And then once you know who it is you're dealing with, you will then worship and praise him because of the characteristics that you recognize in him. And the characteristics that David is going to really concentrate on in this psalm He apparently came across a storm. He's going to describe the storm in very poetic language here. And he's even going to name certain areas, certain cities, so we know that this is in the land of the Canaanites that he saw this storm. But apparently the storm was so big, so rollicking, so overwhelming, that it caused David to sit down and write, well, this has to be God. Who but God could do this. So think about it even in our day. There are certain things that occur here on planet Earth that are just completely beyond our control, despite the fact that we have computer models of the weather and despite the fact that we think we have some kind of comprehension of the way weather works. We're not in control of weather. When a tornado comes, your only option is run and hide. The hurricanes come and people blame global warming or some other natural source for the disaster. David says, no, this is all God demonstrating that he is doing the things that only he can do and that human beings cannot change, cannot solve, cannot alter because he is the almighty God. This psalm is only 11 verses long. And yet the name Yahweh shows up 18 times because David just keeps saying, it's Yahweh, it's Yahweh. He's the one that's doing these things. And he is demonstrating his power and his might through these things. So let's start with the first two verses because, as I said, they are a perfect explanation and definition of what worship actually is and how worship is expressed through us. First verse says, ascribe to Yahweh, O sons of the mighty. Okay, right away, David has described the first characteristic of God. He's the mighty one. He's the powerful one. He is, in fact, the all-powerful one. And we who are his children need to ascribe to him the characteristic of glory and strength. So we recognize our own inability, our own weakness, our own lack of strength. And then we ascribe to him 
all these characteristics and all these abilities that we simply do not have. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory that is due to his name. The reason that even though the NASB says capital L-O-R-D in each of those places, the reason that I'm emphasizing the name Yahweh through here is that David is saying even recognizing his name and what his name means should elicit worship and praise from you. Because after all, the name Yahweh is a self-revelatory name. It's a name where God is allowing human beings to know him in ways that they otherwise could never know him had he not revealed himself. And one of the ways that he reveals himself is through his name, which is why, again, when Moses saw him at the burning bush and Moses said, who are you? Among the whole pantheon of gods in Egypt, when I go to Pharaoh and say, This God said, let my people go. Pharaoh's going to say, well, which God? The God of the Nile, the God of the sun, the God of the crocodile? Which God said this? Who shall I say sent me? And God reveals himself through his name. Tell him I am. And in that statement, he is declaring, I am the only one who is, and there are no others. Which is why the first commandment says you'll have no other gods. I'm the only God. So once you recognize that, once you recognize the meaning behind the name Yahweh, once you recognize that it is God's revelation of himself, and had he not revealed himself to us, we would never know him. We would just keep making up false gods and fake things to worship. But the real God has bowed down low to reveal himself to us. Therefore, David could say, ascribe to Yahweh the glory that is due to his name. And then once you know that he is the Almighty, once you recognize that he's the one with all the glory and all the strength, once you recognize that he is the revelatory God who is revealing himself to you, the directive is worship Yahweh in holy array. Now the NASB says in holy array. The King James says in the beauty of holiness. And actually, I prefer that translation. Holy array, you can hear that and say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean dress up nice? Does that mean dress like a high priest when you come to service? But the beauty of holiness is what's being expressed here. Because the holiness of God is indeed so far beyond us, so far above us, that it is indeed beautiful. So much of this world is ugly. And we use the word ugly to describe ugly Americans or our ugly society or the ugliness of war and famine and death. There is so much depravity and ugliness here among us humans that by contrast, God in his glory, in his holiness, in the exercise of his own righteousness, is nothing but beautiful. And so David says, recognizing that he is the beautiful holy one, that his name is revealing himself, he lives in glory, he exercises his own strength, he is the almighty, therefore worship the Lord in holy array. So the first part of worship is recognizing who he is and what he's like, what his characteristics are. The second part of worship is getting down in front of that one, getting on your face, getting on your knees in front of the one who has all the glory, who has all the power, the one who has made everything. Have you seen the recent pictures that have been coming from the latest NASA telescope the Webb telescope, they have pointed the telescope at corners of the sky that from the Earth, it looks like just an empty black area of the sky. And once the telescope was pointed at those empty areas, there were whole galaxies back there where we can't even see it. We look at it and say, well, that's just blackness there. 
and yet there's all this stuff going on there. We've never seen it. We just recently have gotten a glimpse of it for the first time. God knows every bit of it intimately. He created all of it. He calls it all by name. Okay, that's a pretty glorious God, especially when compared to you and me. We can't see it. We don't know it. He's known it ever since its existence. Okay, that's a characteristic of God. Now, knowing that characteristic of God, ascribe that characteristic to him and get down on your face in front of him because he can do that and you can't. You see David's thinking? And it's just a perfect description of worship. It's a perfect inspiration for worship to recognize God for who he is and what he is like and what his characteristics are and then compare that to the incapability and the ugliness and the depravity and the sinfulness of human beings and then recognize that distance between us and them and his beauty and get down on your face in front of him and worship him because of who he is. And then he starts describing the storm. And he is going to describe it in poetic language, but it's not difficult language to understand. Verse 3 says, the voice of Yahweh is upon the waters, and he is the God of glory, and he thunders, and Yahweh is over many waters. So he's upon the waters, and he's over the waters. He's in the waters. As you see the storm erupting, God is in the midst of all of it. I think, by the way, as we continue to talk about this storm, David seems to be talking about a very literal physical storm that he witnessed. But I think this can also be applied to the metaphorical storms of our lives, the difficulties that we're going through. Because oftentimes when we're going through hard times, it's real easy to think, well, where is God in this? He's right there in the midst of the storm. That's how David describes him. Despite the storm, it is God who is the cause of the storm. And the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. And the God of glory is the one who is thundering. And the Lord is over many waters. Even if there are floods as a result of the rainstorms, God is still over it all. He is empowering it all. He is glorified in the demonstration of his strength so that human beings will get down on their face before him. Verse 4, the voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is majestic. We've heard the last few Sundays in the book of Revelation, we've heard John try to describe these voices that he hears that are like a sound of many waters and like thundering and like harpists harping and It's like he's struggling for words to describe the voice of God. Here David is saying that the voice of the Lord in the way that he is speaking, in the storms that he is bringing up, it's almost like he's shouting at us, here I am, you can't do this, and it's happening, so who's causing it? Clearly God is saying, I'm causing it. I'm showing you myself right now, right here. And when I thunder, I am declaring my existence in the heavens. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon You know what he's talking about here. We live in Middle Tennessee. I have a tree line that runs the length of my backyard. And every time we get a good solid storm, if there's enough lightning and wind, I get up in the morning and there's a tree in my yard. And oftentimes it's a big majestic tree that human beings would have a hard time felling. And yet... Boy, the voice of God and the wind of God and suddenly a lightning strike, which in a minute David is going to say also comes from God. And boom, that tree is down. And so David is saying that the voice of God and the power of God has the ability to fell the cedars of Lebanon, which were these great and mighty trees. And they're nothing before the power of God. Verse 6 says, and this is really humorous language. I really enjoy this phrase. He makes Lebanon, he's talking about the cedars, the trees. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. And Syrian, which is Mount Hermon, 
make Sirion skip like a young wild ox. Here's what he's saying. Have you ever been in a windstorm so bad that you've seen your neighbor's furniture flying down the street? <laughs> I have. I've been looking out my front window and watch neighbors' trash cans and umbrellas and everything else go down the street. But they don't just slide down. They skip down the street, boom, 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 in the wind, tossing them up and down and stuff. He's saying God can do that with the forest of Lebanon, despite the fact that it seems very secure, very solid, very deep-rooted. If God wants to tear down the cedars and then make them skip like a calf, you know, have you ever seen a young calf, a young pony, a young kitten, any animal, just jump up and down in the air? Well, that's what David has seen, especially being a shepherd. He has seen animals act like that. And so he's saying God can make the forests of Lebanon act like that if he wants to because the power of his lightning and his wind and his thunder and his storms can uproot the most deeply planted thing and make it dance across the land like an animal skipping. It's great language. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like the young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. That's that lightning I was talking about. You ever been in a lightning storm scary enough that you felt like hiding somewhere? Mm. I have. I was in Texas one time. There was a lightning storm where the lightning was just nonstop. And everybody just quit driving. I mean, everybody got off the road. Everybody was, anybody who could would get under an underpass. Just avoid the lightning especially those streaks of forked lightning that come down and hit the earth, and things burst into flame. Okay, well, this is what David's describing here, and he's accrediting that to the power and the voice and the glory of God. And the voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire, and the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve. Okay, so now he has described the destructive power through the storms, through the wind, through the lightning, the fire from the sky. He has described the destructive power of God and that the earth and human beings cannot stand against it. And then almost like Job does when God speaks to Job and says, are you the one that makes the baby lions come forth? Do you feed the young animals? David hearkens to that in verse 9 and says that that same voice of the Lord that has all that destructive power is also the voice of the Lord that causes, deers, that causes deer to calve, to have their babies. Okay, so let's check this real quick. April, can you do that? Steve, anything? Can you do it? Jeff, you got that? No, we can't do that. We have no power over when it's time for deer who we can't even get to. We don't even know where they are in the woods. When we do see them, we're like, oh, look, a deer. We have no say-so in their lives. Here David says, even down to those intimate details, the moment of birth for a deer. That's the voice of the Lord speaking doing the things that human beings just can't do. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. Okay, what's David's point? God can do good things. God can do destructive things. And no matter what he does, the inhabitants of his heavenly temple all glorify, praise, and worship him regardless of what it is he does. Now, we, as human beings, sometimes see God do good things, lift us up from our sickness, give us a blessing we didn't expect. He'll do good things for us, and that's when we'll say, well, glory, glory to God. Thank God that's a good thing, glory. Glory. But in fact, regardless of what God is doing, the very fact that it is God who is doing it 
and that he is beautiful in his holiness, that he is perfect in his righteousness, that known unto God are all his ways from the beginning. He is doling out the plan that he has determined since the very beginning. He's sitting on his throne doing whatever seems good to him. And so whether he is causing a deer to calf or whether he is clearing out a forest, either way, the denizens of heaven are praising him and shouting glory to him. So what should we do? The, the same thing. This psalm began with ascribing to the Lord the glory that is due to his name. And then we find out that in everything he does in his temple, everything says glory to him. Well, there's an inspiration to worship. If you know that that's what the heavenly throng is doing, is worshiping God then you really ought to get on the side of the heavenly throng and worship him no matter what happens. Everything in his temple says glory. And Yahweh sat as a king over the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as the king forever. So he may be referring at that point to the flood of Noah, since he's been arguing about the storm and how terrifying the storm was that he witnessed. And then he's arguing that God is above the water and in the water. He's in the lightning. He's in the thunder. If it destroys the trees of Lebanon, God is in that and doing that. He's the all-powerful one, the only one who could do that. And so he may just think back to the flood that flooded the whole world. And yet he argues that he's still the king. He's still sitting on the water and above the water and doing whatever seems good to him. Okay, well, that's the kind of God you're talking about. Verse 11, and Yahweh will give strength to his people. What a wonderful phrase. After he has described this God who can do all these majestic and wonderful things that we simply cannot do. The God who controls universes, the God who controls the smallest of germs and viruses, the God who creates on a cellular level and at the same time is in control and, and naming the vast multitude of planets out there, calling every star by name. That same God who's in charge of storms, that same God who's in charge of baby deer being born, that same God who is sovereignly over absolutely everything is the same one who woke you up this morning. Isn't that good to know? Yes, it is. And if that's who he is, and then he took the time with you, how can you not worship him? How can you resist worshiping a God like that who would then pay attention to you? Should I put an emphasis on you? I mean you. Have you seen you lately? Have you met you? And God, God Almighty, the God who made everything, maker of heaven and earth, the one who controls everything, took the time to wake you up and reveal himself to you and to strengthen you for another day. Makes me think of the book of Numbers where it says, as thy day, so shall thy strength be. God even knows sovereignly what kind of day you're going to have and gives you adequate strength for the day that's coming. The Lord will give strength to his people and the Lord will bless his people with peace. The God who makes floods, the God who makes thunder and lightning, the God who's in charge of what time animals are born, the God who's in charge of universes, is the same God who gives you every blessing you have. You have to worship him. Mm -hmm. You need to get on your face before him. You need to recognize your sinfulness, your ugliness, your depravity, your inability, your incapability, and his complete almightiness. And then when you compare the two, how do you not get down on your face in front of him? Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due to his name. And worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. 
turn to Psalm 33. Because now David is going to describe more about the worship of God. David, being a musician, is the one who arranged the Levites in courses to play music in the temple so that there would be continuous music in the temple of God, playing before God as a form, as a type of worship. And so as we go through the Psalms, we'll see several references to musical instruments. Psalm 33 is the first one that really lays out various instruments for you to play as you're worshiping God. As a consequence, it's pretty obvious that you can use musical instruments in the worship of God. A musical instrument, like the guitar that Jeff plays, is an inanimate object. Because it is inanimate sitting there, it can't sin, it can't do righteousness. It doesn't have a spirit, and it doesn't have a concept or a conscience of doing good or bad. The value of that instrument in worship is determined by the heart of the person playing it. Which is why so much of what is currently called worship in the modern church worries me so very much because they have gone from using their instruments and their talents for the worship of God to direct people's attention to God. They have turned that into a form of performance. Mm And whenever you're performing, you're saying, look at me. Aren't I good at this? I saw a YouTube video that's it's still out there of a, a couple of singers, I think with Vince Gill and someone else, singing How Great Thou Art. Carrie Underwood. Who was it? Carrie Underwood. Carrie Underwood, that's who it was. Singing How Great Thou Art. They did a real good job, professional job. They sang it well, fine. But the comments, of which there were many hundreds, were all commenting on how good they sang. We're all commenting on how well their voices blended or how good the arrangement was. Nobody commented on, yeah, glorify God, which is what that song is about. That song was written to ascribe glory to God. Therefore, when the song is sung, it is meant to ascribe glory to God. But when it's turned into a performance, it becomes glory to the artist, which utterly defeats the whole notion of praising and glorifying God. One of the things that I love about the musicians here at GCA, I mean, we've watched Tom sitting up here playing his guitar for 21 years. Have you ever once gotten the sense that he was putting on a show? Never. Why? Because he and Jeff and Erica, they sit here and play, and Steve on the drum now, Christian on the drum now. What they do is they play the music to accompany the congregation to inspire the congregation to sing glory to God. They don't get that equation confused. The minute that one of them decides, dig me, the moment that one of them says, oh, watch me go, the minute that Jeff starts swiveling his hips in an Elvis style, ah. ah, the minute something like that happens, the minute that we start perceiving that it suddenly has become all about Erica, we're going to ask them to stop playing. Because I've been very direct for 21 years that the purpose of music in church it's for the glory of God and for the accompaniment of the congregation to inspire the congregation to sing. It's never about the song leader. You get it? Okay, so with that all in mind, Psalm 33 starts, sing for joy to Yahweh. That is one of the ways that we worship. It is a characteristic of Christianity for 2,000 years. That we are a singing people. I like the fact that even though GCA is not a mega congregation, we sing. We sing heartily. We sing to the Lord. Not only because the Psalms say to sing to the Lord, but because of examples like Jesus at the Last Supper with his 12. That's a small group. 
after the Last Supper, it says they sang a hymn. They just break into song of praise and worship to God. Singing is instrumental, no pun intended. Singing is part of our worship and praise toward God. It is instrumental to a worship service. Sing for joy to Yahweh, O you righteous ones. There's the qualification. If you're one of his, if you're one of his elect, if you're one of the righteous ones, if you're one of the ones that he has picked out and drawn to himself, then it is necessary that you sing to him. And this is the same David who even says, make a joyful noise. If you can't sing, just make a joyful noise. In fact, verse 3 is about to say, play skillfully with a shout of joy. And the King James translates that, Play skillfully and make a loud noise. So it's not about volume. And it's not about your singing capability. It's about your heart. And it's about your expression of praise to God. So starting at verse 1. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming of the upright. It's a characteristic of ours. It's, It's appropriate for us. As the chosen elect of God, it is appropriate for us to sing praise to God. It's becoming to the upright. Give thanks to Yahweh with the lyre. Sing praise to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. I think what he's saying there is sing always, renewing that praise constantly. Don't let it become stayed the very same way that Jesus said, don't pray by rote. Don't use vain repetition. I think David is saying the same thing. Let your praise constantly be renewed every time you come before the Lord and sing to him a new song and play skillfully with a shout of joy with loud noise. Why? Because the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. A minute ago, we talked about the work of God, the work that only he can do, that we can't possibly compare ourselves to. He is the God who does the work that only he can do, and yet he's doing it in his own faithfulness. He is consistent with himself. He cannot lie. He doesn't have any variableness. There's no shadow of turning with him. He is completely faithful to himself. And all his work is done in that faithfulness of the promises and the covenants and the words that he has already put forward. Why? Because the word of God is upright, which means upstanding, which means you can count on it. It's not a lie. It's the word of the ever-living one. And because everything he says and does is done in faithfulness, you can trust it. Verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of the loving kindness of Yahweh. Here's an interesting description, because a moment ago I said, there's so much ugliness in the world. And were it not for God, were it not for his intervention, were it not for his character and revelation of himself, the world would be nothing but ugliness all the time. And yet God intervenes in this sinful, depraved, ugly world. And he demonstrates his loving kindness in the way that he draws people to himself. Yeah, I got time. Jeff doesn't think I do. But I I have time. Never forget, when you wake up and you think about God, when you go to bed at night and you think, I need to pray to God, When you rev up your voice and you sing to God, whether here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, or whether just walking around the house doing chores and you break out into song, never forget that that's a miracle. Never forget that that is the revelation of God to you. Never forget that that is God's loving kindness in allowing you, wormy little you, depraved little sinful little egocentric you, He allows you to sing to him, to talk to him, to pray to him, to rely on him. That's a miracle. That's unbelievable. That is the loving kindness of God. 
And that loving kindness is demonstrated in the whole earth. Verse 6. By the word of the Lord. Again, he's talking about the uprightness of the word of God that is done through his faithfulness. You can count on the word of God. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host was made. All the angels, all the fallen angels who become the demonic horde. Everything that happens above us, the creation, the universe, all the stuff we're just discovering. God made all that by his word. David's reaching back to the beginning of Genesis. When God said, let there be light, and suddenly there was light, it is by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made, and by the breath, the outpouring of his spirit, through his speaking, through his mouth, all the hosts of heaven were made. He gathers the water of the sea together as a heap, and he lays up the deeps in storehouses. For how long now has the world existed in its present shape, where there's oceans, seas, rivers, and land. Any idea how long? 4,000 years. <laughs> Ever since the flood, it's been like this. How come the seas have not overwhelmed the land? Because mm. God keeps them in a heap, which is really funny language. God said, this is the ocean, you stay here. This is the land. You stay here. David even sees things like the separation between the oceans and the land as demonstration of the power of God, global warming notwithstanding, and all the people who predicted, I mean, I lived through the 1970s and the 1980s and the promise of the coming ice age, and I saw all the movies 20 years ago about how New York was going to be underwater as the global warming was happening. None of that has happened. You know why? Because God's in charge of the oceans, and he's keeping them in a heap right where they belong. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, and he lays up the deeps in their storehouses. They're stored right where he put them. And even the deep ocean down in the Marianas Trench, down in the areas that we haven't explored yet, human beings don't know it. Human beings aren't even benefiting from it. But God knows it's all there. You know, I saw a video one time where they went down into, as far as they could, the Marianas Trench. And you know what they found down there? A glow-in-the-dark fish. Where is this fish getting luminescence from? How is this thing in the deep darkness of the ocean glowing? Well, God did that. Human beings didn't do that. It's just God showing off. Like, oh, you think you know something? Watch this. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, and he lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear. Reverence Yahweh. Again, this is about worship. This is all about bowing down before the God who is the Almighty, who makes and creates and sustains everything. Let all the earth reverence that God. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. I think that's part of the problem of human beings on earth right now is because, and we were just talking about this at men's group last night, we've become accustomed to the fact that the sun comes up every day. We've become accustomed to the idea that gravity works. We forget that this is God empowering and doing all these things. We walk outside, we look up at the sky, we see the universe up there, we see the stars in the heavens, and we forget to stand in awe and recognize what an awesome God he is that he has created and sustains this remarkable creation because we live in that remarkable creation we've gotten used to it we've become accustomed to it and we think oh yeah well that's just the way things are in fact we've become so accustomed to it that the people who oppose the Bible and who oppose the idea of God claim that this all happened through a big bang and natural selection Talk about losing your sense of awe, losing that sense of wonder. You thought that these things just happened naturally? So we need to regain our sense of awe. 
Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Because he spoke and it was done. Okay, let's check again now that we're here. Myrna, can you do that? Speak something into existence. Oh, not just something. Speak yourself a couple of universes. Yeah, you got nothing, do you? And yet, he did that. You don't even have the dirt. Yeah. In fact, if you went outside and got some dirt, that's not your dirt. It's God's dirt to start with. Yeah. So he did do that. You can't do that. Shouldn't you be in awe of him? Shouldn't you be face down in the dust before him? Shouldn't you be marveling at the wonder of his grace and his loving kindness to somebody like you? Shouldn't you be perfectly willing to sing praise and worship that God? The only reason that people don't do that is because they've become used to it. Yeah, God was good to me yesterday. He's good to me today. That's just the way things are. We really ought to live in this constant state of wonder and this constant state of how awesome our God is so that we're praising him and worshiping him with our very lives. Verse 9, all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe before him because he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. You know why the Milky Way is planted exactly where it is in the larger universe? It's where he put it. It's where he put it. And he didn't just put it, he planted it there. He planted it on nothing. He planted it on empty space. But it doesn't move. It stays right there in its place. The planets of our solar system, in their elliptical orbits around the sun, why does that keep working? We can't even make a watch that works that well. And yet his universe keeps moving, keeps performing, because he planted it. He made it stand steadfast on nothing. It's astounding. He spoke, it was done. He commanded it, and it stood fast. And then, after saying, God is in charge of the whole universe and has created everything, and we ought to be in awe of him because of all of that, David then brings it down to God's relationship with human beings. He starts with the macro. He starts with God is in charge of everything that he's made. He spoke everything into existence, and he's in charge of everything, and he can destroy everything if he wants to. That's the almighty God. Stand in awe and worship before him. But now let's see how he interacts with human beings. And very quickly, David eliminates the concept of free will. Verse 10. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations, and he frustrates the plans of the peoples. God does whatever he wants to do. And even though you can tell him, look, this is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. If it's not what he decides you're going to do, you're not going to do it. Mm. Nations can decide what they're going to do. Nations can decide that they're going to come up against Israel. Nations can decide that they're going to take God's people captive. Nations can decide. But they don't get to accomplish any of that unless God says so. Without his say-so, they just stand frustrated. And he nullifies. He makes nothing of the council the ideas, the opinions of the nations, and he frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord, on the other hand, the counsel of the nations, that gets frustrated, but the counsel of Yahweh stands forever, and the plans of his heart stand from generation to generation. He is unchanging, and once he decrees a thing, that does not Change. By the way, that's really good news because if he ever said that you're saved, if he ever decided to change your heart, change your mind, and draw you to himself, he doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He's not going to change his attitude toward you. That's really good to know. The same God who frustrates the plans of people is the same God who does not change when he decrees a thing. 
The counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the plans of his heart stand from generation to generation. Blessed then, as opposed to the nations that are constantly frustrated by God, blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. That's in contrast to all the other nations of the world and all their various gods, all their pantheons of gods and their mythological gods and all the things that they bow down and worship. There is only one God who actually exists, and blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. David there is directly talking about Israel, because Yahweh is the God of Israel. So blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, and the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. There's an absolute declaration by David that God has chosen Israel. And he said that after he said, God doesn't change his mind, and God is faithful. So kind of hard to say he's done with Israel. Absolutely. No. Verse 13, we got to wrap up here. Yahweh looks down from heaven, and he sees all the sons of men. Now that could be really bad news, because in the book of Genesis, he looked down from heaven on the sons of men, and he saw that the... <laughs> purpose of their heart was only wickedness continually and he ended up flooding the earth and killing them all so sometimes when God looks down on men that's a bad thing that's a scary thing but the same way that in this ugly world God demonstrates his loving kindness David says that the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees the son of men and from his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. And he has ownership of them. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their ways, all their works. This is the God who knows, who takes pity on us because we are just dust. That's the loving kindness of God. The same God who could look down on the enemies of God and kill them all. It's the same God who looked down on Luann and said, you're mine. I know what you're like. I know how you're made. And I'm not going to give up on you. Sometimes it's a really good thing to know that God is sovereign on his throne and looking down on you. Now, if you're not one of his righteous ones, if you're not one of his chosen elect ones, well, then that's really bad news to find out that God is up there watching everything, and he knows your ways, and he's going to judge you for them. But David puts it in a positive light here. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees the sons of men, and from his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, and he who fashions the hearts of them all he who understands all their works. The king, David speaking personally, is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. So no matter what you trust in in this world... No matter what you're counting on physically, even if you have an army surrounding you, even if you have mighty horses and chariots and spears and swords, even if you're ready and arrayed for battle, in the end, the battle belongs to the Lord. Deliverance from that battle is up to God. He makes those decisions. He's the one who saves. He's the one who destroys. So verse 18 says, Behold the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. There's that idea again. Reverence him. Fear him. Bow down in front of him. And the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. His loving kindness is in the world. And then we hope for that loving kindness. We have confidence in our future. We're ready to go home because we have hope in the loving kindness of God, the grace of God. The kind of grace that, again, is an example of the character and the nature of God. The kind of grace that we can't do. The kind of forgiveness that we can't forgive. The kind of grace that only God himself can demonstrate. 
And that's why we fear him, and that's why we love him, and that's why we worship him. That's why we bow down before him, because the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. And what is our hope? That that loving kindness will deliver our soul from death and then keep us alive in the famines. He's going to protect us through it all. He's going to protect us through the wars and the difficulties. He's going to protect us through the storm. Verse 20, our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help. He is our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. There it is again, the holy name of Yahweh. And the beauty of the holiness of the name of Yahweh, that's what we trust in. We don't trust in this world. We don't trust in our own capability. We don't trust in our horses or our machines. (coughs) What we trust in is God. He's going to get us through the difficulties of this life. And our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Yahweh, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. That is what worship's about. That's why I put those two psalms together, because David not only told you your inspiration for worship, but then he told you what worship looked like, that you would know who God is, what his characteristics are, that he has the ability to do things that human beings just can't do, that he's willing to upset and frustrate the plans of human beings. He brings about storms. He sustains you through the trials and wars of this life. And therefore, I say again, as David did, get on your face. Worship that God. And with everything that is within you, never take that for granted. Worship that God, because he didn't have to reveal himself, but he did, and he revealed himself to you. How do you take that for granted? Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.